Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We turn to politics now and the debates in Nevada, where it really was fight night in Las Vegas. Mike Bloomberg owns more wealth than the bottom 125 million Americans. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. He has not managed his city very, very well when he was there. One candidate who wants to burn this party down and another candidate who wants to buy this party out. The campaign memo uh, from Mayor Bloomberg said this morning uh, that the only way uh, that we get a nominee is if we step aside for him. I'm a New Yorker. I know how to take on an arrogant con man like Donald Trump that comes from New York. Joining us now, Terry Haynes, Pangea Policy Advisory founder. Terry, we've got to talk about the founder, majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg News, Mr. Michael Bloomberg. How tough was that night for him, Terry? I think it was very tough for him, John. And I think uh, the, the bottom line effect is that the Democratic race is likely more muddled and not clarified after Nevada, South Carolina, Super Tuesday. Remember uh, the Bloomberg case, uh, according to a staff memo uh, found a couple of days ago, is that Sanders is the likely nominee unless Biden, Klobuchar, and Buttigieg drop out after Super Tuesday, make it Sanders versus Bloomberg. After that performance, that's much less likely to happen. Biden. Anyway, I'll stop there. No, Terry, I'm wondering whether Michael Bloomberg's entrance actually ended up helping Bernie Sanders by taking some of the heat off him. Lisa, that's an awfully good question. And I think the the short answer is I think it did. A combination of two things. One is it does take heat off of him. And secondly, you have uh, uh, people that I referred to on a note this morning as second tier candidates. I mean, no disrespect. Uh, Warren, Klobuchar, Buttigieg all tore each other up in order to get a rung up the ladder and stay alive. And the combination of yeah. that with the deflation of Bloomberg, I think, really helped Sanders. Yes. Oh, Terry, good morning. This is the third tier radio guy talking to you <laughs> right now. Terry, you and I have been, you know, seen this before, the niceties of Kennedy, uh, Nixon. You and I don't go back to Lincoln Douglas, but I guess that was fiery as well. Something changed last night. What was it? I think what changed is that uh, you have candidates that, I mean, the market perception, I think, and the general perception, political perception, was that uh, this race was going to get clarified and candidates were going to drop out. And I think what changed last night is that uh, that is much less likely to happen, as I just mentioned. The other thing that changed, I think, is that uh, the, the other candidates were supposed to get the memo that the race was supposed to come down to a two-person battle between Sanders and Bloomberg, and they didn't get that memo. It said quite the opposite. Terry, everything you've said just opens the door to Senator Sanders running away with this. And a question I'm going to ask now is what many people are thinking on Wall Street at the moment. When does this start to bleed into financial markets, Terry? When do we start to see that connection established with Senator Sanders and perhaps being the risk-off candidate for the people on the street? I think that takes a while, actually, John, the, uh, you know, for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, I think uh, markets and the general public both are slow to catch up to this, um, is that, you know, firstly, it, is that what happens is Super Tuesday uh, 
doesn't clarify as much as it's supposed to because the delegates are proportional. Uh, so, you know, it's not a winner-take-all situation. Secondly, the Super Tuesday states generally split between Sanders states like California and other ones, mostly in the South, where uh, what I would call non-Bernies do a lot better, places like Texas, Virginia, North Carolina. Uh, so it's going to be quite a while before that clarifies. And, uh, you know, once if it clarifies in Sanders' direction, I think, uh, I think, frankly, that goes market positive because then it looks like Trump's likelier to win. But the longer this muddles, I think the longer it's a market negative on balance. Terry Haynes, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, this morning with Pangea. Right now, we are thrilled to bring you a gentleman that some would say invented this ages ago before Obama, before William Jefferson Clinton. There was a doctor from New York who was up in Vermont skiing at Sugarbush, and he said, I think I ought to reinvent presidential politics. Howard Dean went on to reinvent the Iowa caucus, and then he went on for leadership within his Democratic Party. Howard, we just got from Terry Haynes. A sort of a grizzled, you know, strategy look from Washington. What did last night mean for the fabric of the Democratic Party, for the operatives, for the people in the states, people that have been Democratic thick and thin? They haven't changed parties. They've always been Democratic. You mentioned the moderate Democrats. What did all this fireworks mean for them last night? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for the overinflated resume. Uh, Secondly, uh, I, in all due respect to all the analysts, people from Washington usually have the last out here of what's going to happen. So let me tell you what I think is going to happen, which is very different. Uh, it's quite possible, although maybe won't happen, that all six of these candidates will go to Super Tuesday. That depends wow. mostly on the finishes of Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden. If they finish decently in Nevada uh, and South Carolina, they're all going to Super Tuesday. Now... When you get to Super Tuesday, we have a rule that says if you don't get 15% of the vote, you get zero delegates. That is going to winnow people out significantly. Uh, people are saying that Bernie's the front runner. I think that's, or Buttigieg is the front runner. I think that's a mistake after two states that are mostly white and don't look anything like the Democratic Party. So um, I'm guessing we're going to have a shakeout, but I'm guessing all six of these, none of, all six of these candidates could go on and win the nomination, as, as we saw last night. I thought it was a fantastic debate. What makes you think from the debate last night that all six could go on and win this, Howard? Because they're all attractive, they all did well, they're all smart, and they all have their own different lanes. Okay, well, let's talk about Mayor Bloomberg, because most people said he didn't have a good night. What did you see that suggests that he could go uh, on and take the nomination? Because he has so much money, he's all over the place, he's on the air. Um, yes, he, he didn't have as good a night as some of the others. This is his first debate. Everybody else has already been in five or six of them. Um, so I don't think that's going to harm him greatly. He has to up his game. He knows that. But he's the one person up there who could come on as a novice and continue to do just fine. My guess is he may, meets the 15% threshold in a number of states on Super Tuesday, maybe even South Carolina. Howard, what do you think of Pete Buttigieg's criticism of Bernie Sanders and his followers and saying that he has to take responsibility for some of the vitriol that is being thrown by uh, the people who are commonly known as Bernie bros? I actually think it helped two people. One was Pete Buttigieg and the other was Bernie Sanders. That is an issue. 
there is a lot of resentment about that. Uh, I don't think that's anything close to the majority of Bernie Sanders. But uh, that is going to be an issue in the campaign. Bernie now knows that, and he's going to have to do something yeah. about it, and I think he will. Howard, one more question, and to get you off in your busy morning, I'm sure, in Democratic politics. If you put Hubert Humphrey up there last night, Scoop Jackson, frankly, if you put Hillary Clinton up there last night, where do they fit in right to left? Would they be the most right candidate up there? I mean, is that Uh, how far your party shifted? I think our party is shifting to the center. I think oh, come on. I didn't hear that last night, Dr. D. Well, uh, you may you may not have, but I'll tell you what's on the ground. Five percent of five Congress people that we elected are significantly to the left of center. Thirty five. Agreed. But, but, but Oklahoma. So the voters are moving to the Senate. Howard, I totally take your point. I didn't see that in John Farrell's Las Vegas last night. I thought Buttigieg was clearly centrist. Uh, Klobuchar was centrist. Bloomberg wasn't able to get his message out, but I, I would guess that he was center to center right, probably the most conservative guy on the stage, although Amy might have been the most conservative person on the stage. Okay, Howard Dean, thank, thank, we're going to have okay. to leave it there just because of time. But Dr. Dean, thank you so much. Former uh, head of the Democratic uh, National Committee. Right now we're looking at E-Trade shares ahead of the market up 24%. Morgan Stanley shares somewhat lower. This comes after Morgan Stanley said that it is buying E-Trade in a $13 billion deal, a more than 30% premium over where the shares price uh, closed yesterday. Shnali Basak, who covers all things financial here for us in Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg News, joining us in our interactive broker studios. And there really is a question, what is Morgan Stanley getting with this deal, given where the valuation is, Shanali. It's Morgan Stanley for the masses, Lisa. So you have a bank here that used to mostly serve wealthy individuals, and they want to go way downstream. They want to serve 13 million customers, and they want to create a full-scale bank, a full-scale digital bank, in which they have checking and savings accounts for millions of people. All right, so back up. The idea here being that E-Trade caters to retail clients, mm-hmm. not necessarily the millionaires and billionaires, and that bringing them in through their brokerage accounts will also generate more deposits and more wealth management and just that whole cross-selling kind of chain of revenues, correct? Yes, yes, and yes. So something interesting. Remember, Morgan Stanley, if you Googled it in the past, people would ask, is Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan the same thing? Most people don't relate to Morgan Stanley because it's an investment bank. It's a wealth manager for wealthier people. But now they're saying they want everyone to know what Morgan Stanley is. Will this do it? I mean, is it worth it? Are analysts saying that this deal seems like it could be really lucrative for Morgan Stanley? Listen, initially the stock is not doing well. So investors on the front end are have their concerns. Why do those concerns exist? For more financial reasons, more likely. What does this mean for buybacks and capital return to shareholders? Strategically, it makes a lot of sense. Why is that? James Gorman, former McKinsey consultant, took over Morgan Stanley, made them one of the biggest managers in America, pushed up those margins, and now is making that even bigger. He's been successful the first time around. Okay, we're beginning to get in some of the numbers here and Allison Williams was real clear about the overpaying here and what's fascinating here and I I look the equivalent of JP Morgan in their charge card business 
revenues are so dear and difficult in the business that everybody's extending out the x-axis the timeline and they're making very clear the break-even period on doing e-trade is much longer than expected have you heard from your sources how long is long yet two to three years well, look, I would say that's short. I so mean, they're going to go for uh, longer? To financially, it makes sense. For them to do this big strategic thing about uh, becoming America's bank, right? To build a full-scale, full-service digital bank will take many years. So think about how long it took uh, Gorman for for <clears throat> his first Okay. I, I want to go. I want to go, Shanali, into your expertise then on Goldman Sachs. You were just at the Investor Day as well. Re, uh, Lisa brilliantly brings up that this is the retailizing of Morgan Stanley. Okay, great. Is this essentially they're trying to get out front of Goldman Sachs? Did they did they acquire E Trade so somebody else? Wouldn't be able to buy it? This is a huge way to stay competitive, Tom. Yes, right? Goldman Sachs. For for Gorman this morning to say that they are building a full-scale digital bank, that is something that Goldman had said before. So how do they compete now in their own plan. Right. And we are seeing that Goldman uh, Goldman Sachs shares down half a percent in pre-market trading. And you're but it's uh, you're going to be speaking with James Gorman, correct? Uh, with James Gor- uh, James Gorman and Morgan Stanley later today. What is sort of the main question that you're hoping to get from him? Well, one thing I want to know about him is: Does this extend his tenure as CEO of the company? So we've been already looking at Morgan Stanley's succession plan for some time. Also, remember Morgan Stanley is still the number one, two, or three investment bank every year, depending on how you look at it. Huge equity underwriter, are the wealth managers now taking back the power of the bank. They are the number one stock trading firm in America. What does this acquisition mean for them? It's probably going to push them much further ahead. One thing, and this will be fascinating, your conversation with Mr. Gorman uh, later today, and, and this goes to UBS, where Axel Weber was heated this morning with me and Francine. That's that because wealth he made fun management, of you, Yeah, he did. But it's where, <laughs> it's where wealth management is. Is E-Trade wealth management, or I love this idea that I, I can't remember whether you, Lisa, said it, uh, that it's just nothing more than a digital bank. I mean, I want to be very, really very clear about that. I want to be very clear that Morgan Stanley was a wealth manager. What they want to become is a bank. They want to become a bank. What's a digital bank? What does that look like? It I mean, means when you, you talk online, to Mr. Solomon, Tom. okay, but this yeah. is important. You talk mm-hmm. to David Solomon, he's got a vision of digital bank. Mm-hmm. When you talk to Gorman today, is his vision well, the same? And how much is this just you don't need the brick and mortar physical space, which are being shut down? I don't know. Away. Jamie, is Jamie Dimon talking about a digital bank? He's just doing it. Can I give you somebody else here that should be a little concerned about this deal? Please. Goldman had to go to Apple. Right, they're the Googles, the Amazons, and all of these tech companies in the world that wanted to get into banking. And Morgan Stanley is saying, "We don't need you." They're saying we can do this right now without big tech. Exactly. Interesting. That's actually fascinating. I mean, the idea being that big tech isn't necessarily uh, going to have the seat at the table that a lot of people thought. Okay, so what are you going to ask Mr. Gorman today? Give give us an outline here. This is a really important interview. What, what's so the one, theme? One Besides, big, you know, how long is he going to stay around? Listen, you're talking about Jamie Dimon. Jamie Dimon has been clipping out the heels of Morgan Stanley's massive stock trading business so how does this deal fend off jp morgan in that business that's something people have not asked about the question you asked before how long will this take for you to become that full-scale beautiful digital block and what is where where's david solomon yeah well that's the point 
John, uh, our, our next guest is great for writing half-sentence headlines that get your BTIG is attention. Is this a compliment or not? Why? Be- here's the reason why Tesla went up. Are you ready? Okay. Why? Because the public is buying. <laughs> I mean, you don't need any more introduction Genius. than that. He's t- here to talk about his former boss at UBS, Julian Emanuel, oh, BTIG Chief here. Equity and Derivative Strategist. Who's Hello, walking Julian. out the door right now? Good, good morning. Disclaimers everywhere. John. So when you were when you were you were at Brasserie Lip there, I've been there many times in Zurich down the street. You and Mr. Amati were there. You know what's the what's the body language here you see on your former employer? Well, look, it, it has been a difficult decade, let's say, to be a European bank. Um, you know, the, the question is, it's not just uh, specific yeah. to that company. It's, are you going to get any relief from these just unremitting headwinds with regard to the yeah. zero interest rate environment? We would actually argue that there is a possibility you're going to get leadership transition in Germany. You, right. If, if you looked at the debate stage last night, we know one thing. We are our deficit you know, I'm a trillion bid, you know, or, or you know, it, it's going well, to Well, Torsten Slack yesterday was saying at Deutsche Bank with a, or two days ago with a, with a GDP slowdown, the deficit, I believe was Torsten could go out to $2 trillion. Julian, I don't want to get you in trouble here with your general counsel at BTIG, but you brought up a really important point, and this goes to the heart of your matter in equity strategy. With the dampening that's out there, the, 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 the zero bound that's out there, is scale the only solution for corporations worldwide, M&A, combinations? Is that the only path forward on the revenue side? Well, it, it, it's not just the revenue side. It's this, you know, the speed of innovation um, and the changing landscape, and, along with our view, that when you specifically look at this transaction in the financial industry, that the retail investor is likely to become an ever more important factor um, as millennials inherit the greatest wealth transfer of all time and they're underinvested chronically. So, so the answer is yes, it, is, it makes sense. It certainly makes sense in the financial industry. Can I just us. sort of take you a little bit further into the realm of getting into trouble? Oh, you are. You're I, just I won't mention UBS. Down. Just the culture difference of working at a Swiss bank versus a U.S. firm. How stark is that still in 2020, Julian? Well, again, a lot of this has to do with if you think about the margin pressure of a European bank and and the tension, the extra tension that you're under in this zero interest rate environment, as opposed to this notion that, you know, the Fed, the U.S. Fed is the only central bank to successfully escape zero interest rates and to give, you know, a margin of profitability back to U.S. banks. You're answering these rude questions so well. I think you could be a seventh (laughs) debater in Charleston. I'm just just, just waiting for him to tell me that he's signed an NDA and he can't talk about what happened at UPS. Watch yourself, then we'll have a real disclaimer. Continue, hey, Julian, fantastic to have you with us. Let's talk about this Teflon S&P 500, shall we? What breaks the mood? What breaks this regime? I always think it's important not to talk about where we think things should or shouldn't be, but think about where we are, what investors are responding to, and perhaps more importantly, what they are not responding to right now. What's your take on those kind of themes at the moment? Well, well, Tom set, set the table perfectly. You know, our view is that particularly when you look at year to date and specifically the month of February, you are seeing something that you haven't seen in several years. And that is the public has become an engaged buyer of stocks. 
whether they're electric vehicle makers or you know technology or what have you the public is back in so from uh, for where we stand you know you're at a very sort of unique juncture where you've shaken off a lot of the uh, coronavirus and the political concerns because the public is a buyer I think a lot of at least the near term is how the flow of news goes and does that cause the public to have less of an appetite over the next four to six weeks uh, in terms of buying stock. We think long term, actually, the key to the public buying stocks and the key to moving markets higher is something you know we've all talked about for a number of months in that the psychology of higher yields starts to coalesce. And to that end, when you look at yesterday's numbers, to see PPI come in very, very hot, whether it's explained away or not, tells you the environment may be changing. I want to pick up on that because today you're seeing a rally resume in bonds, and you have seen a rally pretty consistently with yesterday, perhaps a slight pause in that. Do you think the story being told in bond markets right now is incongruent with a story being told in stocks? It's a massive disconnect. There's no question about it. And when we look at it, it was a disconnect last year, and it's certainly a disconnect uh, on the sector level in the equity markets, you know, with this incredible outperformance in, in utilities, for one. Um, and, and when you think about the evolution of last year, there was a time uh, in, in September when we made what we think is actually going to be a defensible global yield low, is that the story came together, but the coronavirus has sort of put uh, sand in the wheels. How long can this divergence happen, exist for? I would say that given the dynamics of we're going to know over the next month or two what the path of this exogenous variable being the, the coronavirus is likely, you know, and the expectation oh. is it'll clear up in April, but also, uh, you know, the uncertainty surrounding the election. It's going to be resolved sometime between now and, and Election Day, Julian, we think. Julian Emanuel with us, BTIG, Chief uh, Equity and Derivative Strategist. Julian, I want to go, and I don't want to talk about E-Trade Morgan Stanley. I understand that's inappropriate. But I want to speak to you about the kind of companies that are seeing low single-digit flat revenue growth right now. What bogey do they need to desire? Do they need just to get back to nominal GDP 4% or those days done? Can you get valued in this market with mid-single-digit revenue growth? Well, the issue there is, is that kind of low and slow grower. Actually, for the most part, their stock price has outperformed massively over the last couple of years. Explain that further. Because they are in sectors that are perceived as to be defensive and bond proxies uh, for the most part. What we would say is if we are about to go into an environment where yields, however gently, because central banks are still behind uh, you know, monetary accommodation, but yields on the long end, if they do pick up, that will become a challenge stock price performance metric. But what's your number on revenue growth where you say in any sector, is it 5% revenue growth is the that's, appropriate number? That's what we're thinking about uh, this year, and that's reasonably consistent right. with earnings growth progressions John, in the cycle. John, this is a huge statement because I thought, you know, Honeywell out with 8% organic sales like 12, 18 months ago. All these companies are doing two and three-ish, four-ish percent. It's not good enough. So, Julian, what supports an 18, 19 times multiple? Exactly. Well, it, it, at, at this point, it is the yield for the most part and the monetary accommodation. But our view is what will continue to support it uh, after we look through some of the headwinds uh, facing markets is the rotation 
out of you know trillions of dollars of fixed income exposure and trillions of dollars of money market uh, exposure as high as the depth of the financial crisis and into I was equities. having that conversation 10 years ago, Julian. 10 years ago. I remember having those conversations in London, people talking about the big moves coming out of fixed income and into equities. You watch. It'll be the equity guy's world. He and had it's, that it's conversation. The, it's the fixed income world. It has been for the last... 10 years. I know we've had a great bull market, but just in terms of the flows, haven't really left fixed income, have they? No, no, they haven't. And actually, that's part of the the surprise of this year. Our thesis was is that you'd start to see the move out and into equities, but you're seeing the the wall of cash going into fixed income and equities. Don't be a stranger. This has been really good. Julian Emanuel, thank you so much. BTIG. Let us digress here. We got a lot going on this morning, and we need to get back to Econ 101. How about American economic growth. And of course, the backdrop here is the oddities of the labor market. Brett Ryan really slices and dices for Deutsche Bank. They've got a wonderful team over there. And what's interesting is what I would call as a general statement, an optimistic house. They've gotten more cautious. Brett, have you marked down your GDP recently? Can you even tell me 12-month run rate of GDP is 2.0 or dare I say below 2%? Uh, hey Tom, good, good morning. And uh, yeah, I mean the the data this morning, the Philly Fed seems to be speaking of "fly me to the moon" um, in terms of uh, Frank Sinatra tunes, but that's probably a weather impact there. Yeah. But uh, on our GDP call, you know, we're still at two two on uh, Q4 over Q4 basis, but we our Q1 number is one four. And what we're trying to we're point out here is that the Fed's narrative and the market's narrative is that the strong labor market and consumer spending is going to carry the day you know, through this soft patch in business investment and trade, right? And what we're doing is we're pointing out some where there could be some cracks in that story. And we've been talking about this for a few months now, the slowing in, in hours worked, the slowing in wage growth, and more recently, the spike down in job openings. Right. And job openings have been um, you know, a bit of a leading indicator okay. in the past in terms of payroll. I want to get out front of Richard Clarity. He's on the Death Star right now speaking to Steve mm-hmm. Leesman. I'm sure that's a good conversation. Clarity is, of course, <laughs> out with the headline, Fundamentals of U.S. Economy are Strong. Give us an update on your, your Fed rate cuts right now, one or two this year. Where's Deutsche Bank? Uh, we actually we don't think they cut this year. We think they're they're able to hold off until next year uh, as they transition to uh, a soft form of average inflation targeting. And we think their initial move will be to you know use forward guidance to try to gin up inflation expectations. And then when you know our inflation forecast, we don't see core core PCE getting back above two percent. Wow! Wow! In the next year, wow. and so eventually they're going to have to be. They're going to be forced to, you know, sort of prove that they're committed to the strategy. Right. I just, John, I just want to say we're killing it. Maria has Greenspan on right now. We talked to him a couple of weeks ago. Our good friend Richard Claire is on CNBC. We have Brett Ryan at Deutsche Bank. We are winning. <laughs> Brett's crushing it, but Brett says something really important, so let's not bury the lead. You think there's cracks in the labor market right now, Brett? That's a non-consensus call, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think it, it's one of the... the Let's. I mean, to be clear, all of the, you know, the, the um, you know, unemployment rate says, you know, the job market's really healthy, right? And what we're saying is that you're seeing some cracks in labor demand, right? You know, 
first firms start to slow hours worked. Then they start to slow wages and wage growth and push back on that if margins are being squeezed or demand seems to be falling off. The last shoe to drop is is laying workers off, and that's when you get a recession, right? And so firms are reluctant to lay workers off because it is still a tight labor market. But the hiring trend has been falling. I mean, you know, and that, that's to be expected somewhat. Um, but now we're just seeing a few more signs where of, of where demand may be slowing for labor. And, you know, if, if, it, can, if it continues on a, on a gradual trend, then that's okay. But you'd have to be, you just have to be worried, a little bit more concerned than it most people seem to be appreciating okay. of how strong the labor market is. Well, Brett, is. give me a sense of just your conversations with clients at the moment, mm-hmm. your market participants. How receptive are they to this argument? Do they turn around to you and say, Brett, you might be right, but until I see it in claims, I'm not going to do anything. What kind of responses do you hear? Yeah, definitely claims is the common argument. Um, and th- and that's, that's <clears throat> uh, for sure, claims are the best labor market indicator out there. And we've written about that, um, especially continuing claims. Until you see con- continuing claims in an 1850 type range, we're at 1726 today, um, you really don't have to be that concerned. Uh, but you know, for sure, I think people are, are recognizing that, you know, as we get into the back half of the year and political uncertainty sets in, maybe you want to, and given that credit spreads are, are at, at tights, maybe you want to take a little bit of risk off here and start to question, okay. you know, where could everybody be, be wrong? My head is spinning here. I've got Brett Ryan on, folks, and he's giving me uh, this caution on labor, John, as you brilliantly caught. And I got Richard Clarida giving me headlines saying it's a good picture and monetary policy is accommodative. Brett, why are we talking about a rate cut? Well, I think the, the market's certainly pr- like pricing a rate cut by the middle of the year. Um, you know, some on the back of uh, the coronavirus, I think that's that's fueling some of it. But, you know, maybe, you know, the bond market's seeing sort of similar things that we are. Yeah, but what does Deutsche um, Bank say? What, are you telling me we're going to justify a rate cut with a 2.2% GDP growth? Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to envision that, right? Thank you. Okay. But, you know, the Fed cut 75 basis points last year, and we... The economy still managed to to eke out close to two percent growth, and so you know it's it's I think it's it's finding a calibration of we're in a permanently low rate environment or not permanently but at least for a long period of time a low rate environment, just how low that is in order to be accommodative. The Fed's still sort of you know feeling around in the dark around that, about that. When you talk about the cracks in the labor market, there's a question of how long it is before people start using the R word again, recession, because that's pretty right. much off the table at this point. What, where did we push that back to? Well, I think, you know, we, we haven't been calling for recession yet. Um, I think it's notable that the Fed's preferred measure of the, of the yield curve, which is the three-month and then the 18-month uh, forward, is inverted again. And that's been what the, their research has shown has been uh, one of the the best uh, indicators in terms of recession from a curve perspective. Um, you know, it, it's it's hard it's, it's it's hard to call these things. It's very difficult to call these things. What, what's going to be the, the the straw that breaks the camel's back? You know, is it going to be um, you know a financial story, a financial condition story? Um, but I think one of the things that we're, we're focused on is, you know, financial conditions look really good, 
but that's in contrast to what some of the fundamentals, the ISM and the non-manufacturing ISM, which have they've stabilized, but they're not strongly rebounding. Um, you know, today's Philly Fed, the headline looks really good, but that's there's going to be that's definitely a weather boost there. The details are more mixed, and so you know, I think, it, and it's also what does a recession look like, right? It's you're gonna you know you're gonna get a recession sometime in the next few years. The question is, how deep is it? What does it look like? Is mm-hmm. it a 2000 type scenario where you have two quarters of capex down and two quarters of rising unemployment? Right. Or is it, you know, a 2008 disaster, 2009 right. disaster? It's probably not going to be 2008, 2009, right? Brett, Brett we've got to leave and, it there. Brett Ryan, we've yep. got to leave it there. I'm sorry. Brett Ryan with Deutsche Bank. Uh, this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.